0: All right. So thanks for joining us today and listening to the CoachCast podcast. Today, we have got a second-time guest on the show, which I'm very excited for. We have Coach Lee Taft. Thanks for joining us, Lee.
1: Oh, guys, thanks so much, Chris. Ash. I've been looking forward to this, and I always enjoy talking with you and following the information you put out as well.
0: I appreciate that. So today is... I suppose like we talked a little bit before we started recording, we want to touch on one or two different topics as well. And I think a lot of topics that are actually close to people's heart in and around uh, COVID as well. I'm not going to dive too much into your background, but I would say for people that do want to know more about Lee and to be honest, if you haven't listened um, before you listen to this episode, I would go back and listen to episode. I can't remember actually what number it is now, um, but I would listen to Lee's previous episode. Cause there is so many uh, nuggets in that episode. Um, that's going to lead nicely into this conversation uh, that we're going to have uh, have today so I just want to kick us off Lee actually talking around obviously speed training you're known very well in the industry for for various speed training and consulting and organizations but I just want to know do you see any differences within training kind of the field versus the court sport athlete is there any like challenges that you see there or questions that you get when you go out and consult at major league baseball and the NFL and things like this
1: It's a great question. And yeah, you know, you do. I mean, anytime you, anytime you change the environment, you're going to have, and obviously the tasks that go along with that, you're going to have some modification of your coaching. You're going to have some different uh, variables to deal with. Um, You know, one of them being when we start going onto a field, whether it's natural grass or turf, you're usually gonna deal with some kind of cleat or studded shoe if it's a turf or depending on what it is. And um, there's there's concepts that I live by uh, in movement and it, ha- it, it deals with repositioning. And what that basically means is an athlete, usually if they have to change directions quickly or do something, they they literally pick their foot up and place it somewhere else aggressively it would be comparable to throwing a punch in martial arts okay i might, my fist might start in closer to my body maybe protecting my jaw and i release it and i make contact the foot might start underneath my hips and all of a sudden i release it and i contact the ground that projects me in a new direction so if i take a field sport i want to be really aware of making sure they do what we call clear your cleats clear it from the ground so we don't have any kind of tug your foot's not caught and you don't have this torque, you know, kind of these odd feelings going on in the ankle, the knee, possibly the hip. And we just release and we attack the ground. On a court, let's say like a basketball court or a volleyball court or a team handball or something of that nature, maybe racquetball or squash. Those are a little bit different because we don't have to worry about the turf surface. We don't have to worry about the cleats. But we still have to worry about potential slipping. Now, if we go to like a court like um, Hartroup or, or um, you know, a red clay in tennis, we, we have to be able to manage the different forces because I can literally slide into my, into my deceleration patterns and I have to learn it's actually a skill. And you know this, you've lived in the world of tennis for quite a while. It's a different skill set. In basketball, if I ever were to slide, game over, I'm beat. I'm not going to be able to recover from that. But in tennis, I can do that, and I can actually use that to my advantage to be able to stay balanced and to be able to hit a stroke. So we do have the differences that we have to consider when we're dealing with field sports and court sports. And not to mention, and this is one thing people forget about is, Usually most court sports, the, the size of them are much limited to like a, a pitch, you know, or if I'm playing American football or if I'm, if I'm doing lacrosse or something like that, or maybe rugby, there's going to be some maximal sprinting going on. Or even in baseball, if I have to run far enough, I'm going to be close enough to maximal sprinting. So those are other factors that we'll have to deal with as well.
0: And then, so just staying on that, so you mentioned clay and tennis. Now, obviously, tennis is one of the few sports that actually changes surfaces throughout the, um, the calendar. Yeah. Do you see that kind of, let me take that question back a little bit and start again. When you're coaching your tennis players, for example, is there a different approach that you take with the, the maybe if they're playing on clay or going towards maybe a, a summer series or whatever it might be on clay versus comp movements are you approaching that training block maybe slightly differently or what are you seeing what are you thinking there?
1: yeah so when i was at the tennis academies and we were getting players prepared for like the the grand slams and the different surfaces we did we approached it differently because we knew that they were going to have to manage the surface differently they some a lot of times they even changed their shoes they wore a different type of a shoe and so we would approach it differently. And the one thing that, that you know, comes into play right off is the eccentric loading. Um, you know, when I'm on a surface where it's pretty grippy and I don't have a lot of slipping, it's, it's, it allows me to be quicker, but that comes at a price because my loading and that jarring and, and uh, the stress that goes into a, a change of direction or a quick plant, is much more aggressive on my joints and my feet and my, just even like your fat pads of your feet and things that that are getting really pushed around a lot. All those things have to be considered when you start talking about volume. Because if you do too much change of direction throughout the week and they have tournaments, they're gonna be sore, there's a good chance they're gonna be sore but you're also going to fatigue them differently than if they're playing on a surface where they don't have to uh, deal with such great forces.
0: Mm -hmm. And when it comes to the more technical aspects of what, like the differences in movement that you might see on a hard court versus clay court, for example, is that something you adapt with your coaching as well? Do you practice more sliding into a wide forehand with an open stance, for example, or maybe hitting that slice backhand on the slide? Is that something that you're discussing and adding into your toolbox almost as you're working with your players, or are you leaving that purely to the technical tactical side?
1: You know, we, we do put a little bit of time into it, but when I used to be with the academies, a lot of it was because the coach would ask us to do that. They would say, Hey, would you spend 15, 20 minutes working on their footwork on the court so that they can slide other than that, we didn't do a ton of work on that area unless the court surface that we had to move on was on either a clay or a you know or maybe a hard true surface or something of that nature where we could slide or even grass if we happen to have a grass uh, surface Um, but otherwise we tried not to do too much of it um, but we did address it especially if we felt it was a need but because they practice so much and they play so much on it they usually get it so we didn't have to do that so we could focus on the variables of strength and mobility and stability, stuff that that was really in our lane. Uh-huh.
2: Yeah, that, that seems quite interesting that you're talking about um, how different surfaces require different uh, movements even. Um, I just want to circle back a little bit to what you talked about uh, with the field versus court sports, is the maximum velocity component of it. So I know in your previous podcast with Chris, you guys talked about how maximum velocity was one of your seven key movements that you look for. I was wondering whether you see a different role it playing for like tennis athletes. So one of the debates I always have, what we always have in the office at work is, you know, how much time do you need to spend doing sprinting, like maximum velocity sprinting with a tennis player? So I was wondering where might you kind of side on that argument? Um, of how much they need to do high-speed high, high speed sprinting.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a great uh, question asked because here's the thing. You got to look at sprinting. You, you, what you need to do is when you look at a sport that has a movement pattern that doesn't get used a ton in that particular sport, you got to look at what could be the benefit of it because, like, I could sit here and say, well, why would I ever want to squat with a tennis player? They... You know, they never put a bar on their back when they're playing, and we all know that's a silly question. So I look at sprinting as, yes, they may never reach maximal speeds, but the sprinting action, the the ground contact and what happens with ground reaction force and gravity, when that happens and I create a stiffer foot, uh, a really good ankle, a great lower leg, those qualities benefit my change of direction, my acceleration, because we've even seen athletes that have been trained highly in sprinting have a much more stable ankle when they do something like a heavy slight push versus the athlete that has not done that. So we know there's value in it, not to mention the strengthening of the hip and the core and all those things that it does. But this is the cool thing with it. I've always felt, and I've done this when I coached my athletes, even my basketball uh programs. Once we've developed a capacity of sprint max velocity, all I had to do is every one, uh, once every seven to eight days, we hit a sprint session. And it might only be four reps of like 30 meters. And that's all we needed. And then that
0: maintained
1: that quality that we wanted to get out of the sprint. So it doesn't take up a lot of time.
2: Yeah, I, I got think, a question. Um, just
0: sorry. To, sorry, Ash, go on, go on.
2: I was just going to say, I, I absolutely can agree with the point where you're talking about building up sprint capacity, because we've run like an Easter training camp at school and we gave we gave the kids like a, a session of like, you know, a, a speed session of sprinting. Um, and I got a message from the coach the next day saying, oh, the hammies are, re- are pretty sore now. I'm like, So yeah, you definitely have to build up to it before yeah. definitely going straight into getting them to <laughs> race in for about 30 meters at, uh, after each other.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Just just to follow up on that, Lee, because obviously, like you talk there, I think I see sprinting as one of those qualities. It's kind of the old saying that a high tide helps all ships. It's one of those qualities that just brings everything up, which I think is is fantastic. And it's almost a lot of easy wins. With that in mind, and if you're working with maybe a squash player or a smaller court sport athlete, uh, how much time are you spending on those max velocity mechanics and to what degree are you being kind of nitty and picky, kind of over those mechanics, knowing that they're not going to touch them that often?
1: Right. I think it comes down to um, is there a potential danger when we are doing sprinting and they have really poor mechanics that could possibly create a, an injury or something? But for most athletes, as long as they have a proficient, Mechanics of sprinting, we're gonna be okay with that. And kind of like Ash said, where you know the players were kind of sore in the hamstrings, we just progress them. But here's the thing: I have learned over the years to buy time and to buy space in my warmup. So in the warmup, I can do like a march, a skips, a runs. I can do dead leg drills. I can do wicket runs. I can do things that can allow me to work on the qualities of a max velocity sprint without actually doing it. I can do anklings, I can do things like that, that where I can get some benefit, but I can do that during the warm up. So I'm not borrowing from any other time. I'm just using the time I have anyway and get the benefit there. Then when I'm scheduled, to do actually max velocity, then obviously that's what I'm gonna put in the work and the actual sprinting. But the other days I'm working on max velocity, postures, positions, elasticity, all those things every day. So I get, it's kind of like, if you do it every single day, it adds up volume by the end of the week, but I'm just doing it in the warm up anyway, which they have to do.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's, I know I like that a lot. And then how much you're saying, you're talking about various running drills there, your dead leg run, it's your, a skips, B skips, et cetera, et cetera. Does that make up a, a big part of your kind of weekly training cycle, so to speak? Um, is that making up? I, I class that person as almost special strength training because you're not hitting those velocities, obviously, in the gym. For me, they're very important qualities that you can develop in the warm-up. Is yes. that kind of how that looks for you?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just a, it's, like I said, you just kind of find time to do the things that you know, you're going to get some benefit of, but it's really easy to push aside if you don't schedule it, you know, because mm-hmm. like you said, if you have a volleyball athlete, a squash player, you're thinking, oh, geez, they're never going to sprint that far anyway. So it's easy to push that aside. So if you schedule it and you have it in there, just, it just becomes a part of your prep period.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, Lee, thanks for, uh, I really guess, really making an insight into um, talking about different, types of straight training, and you also, what I took away from the, that max velocity section was almost using it as a tool to develop this, the qualities that you're after, and we know uh, in the youth population, it's not always the same person's ready for exactly uh, the same stimulus, so I was wondering if there was any differences you see in training, I guess those adolescent guys that are like 14 to 16, um, versus some of the guys who are a lot older, you um, I guess eighteen plus you know young adults kind of guys, is that much difference you see in on the programming side of things?
1: You know uh, what I really love about this question, and I've talked about this a lot, and my philosophy has been for years because you know like like you i'm in I was in a school setting i i you know I' taught kindergarten all the way through twelfth grade, and of course, I've owned training facilities as well, so I've been around a lot, and what i what I found in my philosophy is there really is no age bias when it comes to movement, when it comes to athletic development. A, a five, six-year-old can learn how to skip, they can learn how to run, they can learn how to change directions, they can jump, land, back they can all do that. There's no reason the nervous system can't be exposed to those patterns. That's the cool thing about the, I, I build my whole program around these seven basic patterns. So regarding them actually performing the skills, I have no difference between my young kids and my older. What does change is how much exposure per session, per rep, per you know um, block of training. That changes how intense I go, my coaching cues, uh, the way that that drills. So for example, if you know the three of us were all in, you know, let's say the 10 year old, you know, nine, 10 year old age group. A lot of those movements will be uh, distributed to those athletes in a game format. Um, some chase drills, some things. And then I can, I can dribble in, in a little bit of teaching while they're doing it. But if the three of us are all getting ready to maybe compete at the high club level or university level, now, we're gonna be much more strict as to the mechanics, the accomplishment of hitting positions and postures, uh, being accountable for, uh, you know, being disciplined on the techniques that we use. You know, as we're a 10 year old, you know, they're 10, you know, they're not gonna do things that well, cause they're gonna, that, that, that detailed progression or detailed instruction that I give a young kid, it's going to change anyway when they go through their puberty and their growth spur. It's going to change because everything changes. But an 18-year-old, they need to be held accountable to do things right if they want to reach the levels we want them to reach. So that's where the difference, the difference in uh, the, the exercises comes from.
2: Yeah, I think uh, absolutely I can relate to seeing the different levels of engagement, I guess is the word that I like to use in those younger guys versus the, the older kids. Um, yeah. And I was just wondering if, you know, as you probably have experience in a school setting, especially, there's absolutely a wide bandwidth of A, engagement and B, um, I guess, ability within a single session. I was wondering mm-hmm. if you had, have any advices for those young coaches who might maybe struggle with adapting or being able to deliver a session when you've got such a variety of abilities within a session. You've got any advice there for, for those guys?
1: Yeah. So anytime you're going to teach a, so let's say if we're going to teach a, um, maybe it's going to be a change of direction drill. Maybe we're going to do like a shuttle run. They're going to run out five meters, going to come back, run out 10 meters, come back, something like that, something simple that everybody can visualize. What you want to do is you want to give everybody the same opportunity initially to go ahead and do it. Because what you're doing is you're immediately giving all the athletes context, meaning, if they do it really well or kind of struggle or fail at it they have a difficult time maybe they just they stumble you've given them context so now when i come back with what i call a corrective drill so some type of drill that's going to help them now i can address the points on each athlete the one who nailed it and did a great job i can put more emphasis into the intensity of it being sharper being more accurate with their foot and body position. The kid that's, you know, kind of stumbled and really struggled through it, I can have them do only a portion of that. I can have them run to the line, freeze, stop, reposition your foot, get it ready, now take off, and then gradually go faster. So we can actually take the same um, drill and just give them little progressions to make it easier for us as coaches to be able to deal with the exact same skill and just kind of make adjustments to that skill. That way I'm not, I'm not doing like six different things. I'm just taking the same skill, same pattern. I'm just either increasing my feedback or my instruction based on the athlete's needs.
2: Yeah, I I love that. It's almost like, uh, I think you may have talked about it before where there's a whole part whole approach where, you know, you're yeah. definitely making sure that the kids know where they might place on versus the other guys. So you're not singling them out for no reason. You've actually got some evidence that, that shows right. them that it, they need help.
1: It, exactly. And, and what it does, anytime you do that, you get better compliance from the athlete because they're like, yeah, I know I struggle. Every time I do that, I fall or I trip. Now you can say, OK, well, this is what we're going to do to fix it. And then with the athlete that does it really well, you're saying, great job, but let's make sure we keep that pattern clean because we don't want it It'd be just like you know trying to like kick a soccer ball up into the maybe upper corner of the net. Maybe they're great at it, but that doesn't mean you don't keep practicing it because you want to keep that pattern very clean and and accurate. So you practice it. It's, that's called supporting a skill versus. Uh, redirecting a skill,
0: and I think that is because I, I think you mentioned that on the last time we spoke, Lee. And for me, that's something I've tried to incorporate into my own practice a little bit more. When I'm working with kids and things like that, or, or student athletes, whatever it is, it's trying to to give them the experience to start with, go in that whole part whole. Because if we all of a sudden just break it down into its component parts, then they're kind of like, well, oh, how does this work? And you can see their faces kind of puzzling. It's like So if we're working on a drop step or a hip turn to acceleration or whatever it might look like in an overhead, for example, we'll give them that pattern to start with and then break it down. Okay, well, you actually really struggle to attack the ground here. So we'll we'll pull it down and then try to explain, okay, well, do you see how this works? And you can see the light bulb go off a little bit more versus if you were to just go straight to the hip turn, they're like, what is this? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's great that's a great thing that you've kind of explained there and then i i love that terminology of the correctives as well cuz uh, which i ne- i never used to think of it that way that's something that it really is isn't it
1: yeah because if we look at every if we look at everything as its ultimate skill so pick any movement you want in tennis or basketball or soccer or whatever it is those movements, those are the ultimate, that's it. That's the skill. Whether I'm recovering from a wide forehand or I'm marking somebody on defense and I have to open my hips quickly and, and you know fight for the ball, um, that's the skill. If I don't do that skill very well, I come in and I correct it. And the other thing, if we start talking about the development of learning, we want synaptogenesis to occur. We want that, those synapses to occur. Well, if we only teach from parts all the time, the brain's like, well, okay, if that's what you want, I'm just going to develop a synapse series here for this part. Well, that's not what you want when you're out on the tennis court or on the pitch or on the basketball court. You want the whole skill. So the more exposure they get to that whole skill, the smoother that pattern becomes. And the brain will recognize when you're coming in with a corrective because you're just trying to support it but the real pattern is being
0: uh, reproduced more often. Yeah, and by definition, I don't think we've done our job unless it's actually transferred to the court or field as well. (laughs) That's that's even more important. Um, I just want to kind of pick up a little bit, just going back to Ash's original question, actually. So we obviously talked about the adolescent versus maybe the young adult and saying, okay, is there any difference? And we've kind of said no, but it's just more the how we the drill that we give them necessarily in, in whether it's a game versus a more prescriptive kind of drill selection let's just say yeah. that so i've heard you actually talk about before saying the body's never wrong in what it decides to do it's just maybe the option it chooses or something like that I, the i could have completely quoted you wrong there so apologies but do you mind just talking about that because people would say okay if, if you come down to like dynamic systems theory and things like this how you shape that learning environment and everything else do you mind kind of getting into that a little bit? Because in theory, if we were to say, okay, well, the, the body's never wrong, then surely we don't have a job. <laughs> do you know what I mean? So I think yeah. some people might take it to the extreme and think that. So do, exactly. you, do you mind kind of just getting into the details of, okay, well, maybe the body's not wrong. It's just adapting to the situation that it's dealt with, but we've got to maybe make those preceding steps better. That's right.
1: Yes. and And this is where I want to clarify that because so my, my, what I'm, what I'm saying is, When an athlete performs an action, and that action does not fit the model of that movement, so let's let's say um, let's say we're we're doing a model of a triple jumper. Okay, in our heads we can picture what that looks like. We can picture the flight time, the big separation of the legs, ground contact, boom, they pop off, and we can see it. Well, now if someone if someone came up and they did that completely wrong like their foot plant was wrong but they still executed it the body is going to still execute what it has to do so on any footwork pattern any movement the body is what whatever my setup is so whatever strategy you give the body, it's gonna say, Well, okay, if that's how you want me to move, I'm gonna figure it out and I'm gonna move. So it does, it figures it out. It it might not be correct in terms of the model, but the body doesn't know that, it just knows what you're asking it to do. So if I told you, Chris, I want you to shuffle as fast as you can to your left, but you have to touch your feet together. You gotta to start with your feet together, they cannot be apart and they can't be wide. Your brain's gonna say. Well, all right, I can do it, but it's not gonna look pretty on that first step. I get, so my point is the body's not wrong. It's doing what you're asking it to do. It, the solution might not look like the model that we want as we're in a basketball player or a tennis player ready to return a serve. They're gonna get wide, you know, they're ready to move right or left or on an angle. So my point was the strategy chosen by maybe us as the coaches telling an athlete was wrong or maybe the body chose the wrong strategy but it did its best with that strategy to accomplish the task so that was my my message to that the body's really never wrong because it just does what you're asking it to do if the strategy is wrong or the starting position or my hand position on a bat or a racket if it's wrong the body's like well okay if you want me to hit it that way i can do that just isn't gonna look very good. So that was kind of my point behind that. And that's the beauty of the body. It will it will compensate and it will find ways. Our job now is to say, well, you're not hitting the model of how that movement should be done biomechanically, physically, and safety wise. So we're gonna now intervene, excuse me, intervene with a better strategy for you and more correctives. That was kind of my point to that. Mm
0: -hmm. No, I think that's it that's a great point and I think it, it comes back to a lot as well where it's your some of your experiences that for me just makes a lot of sense and it's the more ex, the more experiences an athlete can be exposed to yes. the better they're going to be able to adapt to that experience or situation that they find on the field at court because the last thing we want to do as physical preparation coaches strength conditioning whatever you want to call us is send an athlete on court with this prepackaged kind of movement technique that looks fantastic in this, this closed (laughs) environment, but completely falls apart under the slightest amount of stress and things like that. And that's where, yeah, I think we've just got to expose them to be able to perform under pressure. People would say, oh, that's mental toughness or whatever it is. And it's, it's no, I think it's just more, okay, well, look, we're looking at our linear acceleration. So for me, a linear acceleration is a very important uh, quality that you find even from a lateral position. I know you, you call it, I think, a, as a lateral run step. So yeah. trying to get into the court, you're, you're still trying to hit those linear acceleration positions from the lateral run. It's just a different starting position. But it's trying to expose the athlete to as many different start positions as possible. Because we know in tennis, you can find yourself in any which position on the court. And it's the best athletes we know can find those acceleration shapes more often than the, the sub-elite or even... Good or elite players. If you look at the likes of Fed, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, they find those positions so much more consistently than the rest of the, the rest of the world.
1: Exactly, that's such a great point and well said. And it's exactly it. The more exposure an athlete has to something and having to solve that movement puzzle, the better they get at it when they're under pressure and high stress. And you know seven, eight in the fifth set in the grand slam tournament, they don't have to worry about what their feet are going to do. They can just execute the task as where you and I are going to probably whiff on the ball and look stupid out there compared to these guys who do it. And that's that's the beauty of the experience they have.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I love what you guys are talking about as well, because it reminds me of, um i wish i could remember the guy's name but it was a podcast and they were talking about preparing people for the marines uh and the u.s navy seals like, entry tests and they were talking about how all of it was about uh, stress inoculation so it's you're exposing the whoever it is the athlete the client the person to some kind of stress gradually making it more so that when it happens for real they're more adapted to it and they don't have as much of a, a perturbation off the back of it um, um yeah Yeah, and I kind of want to circle back. Oh, sorry, circle back to um, when you were talking about how the body's never wrong, and it almost sounds like there's a a way of looking at something when when an athlete is struggling with an exercise. I have got a friend of mine who uh, Jack I worked, and he he talks about how the athlete either doesn't know how to do it, can't do it, or won't do it. So if you can almost work out what is the issue there, then it might help you work out what environment you need to put them in and what you know what context you need to give them to to fix those issues
1: yeah yeah exactly and that's it it's so what 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 happens is and this is the the importance of us coaches is if we if we prescribe the you know you've heard this before if we prescribe the wrong drug in medicine right there's there could be a bad outcome Well, if you prescribe the wrong exercise or the wrong dose of it, there could be a bad outcome on that. So movement is no different. So when I look at an athlete move, it's funny because here's my kind of three things that I always look at. It could be a biomechanical issue. It could be a strength or power issue, or it could be a skill acquisition issue. It could be all three But if we look at an athlete that is being exposed to a very new skill, they've never done it before, we could probably say even before they do it, well, there's probably going to be a skill acquisition, you know, default there. They're just not going to know yet. But if they've been doing it for a while and they execute it fairly well compared to the model of how we want it, but it just isn't um, they're not very like explosive with it well we could say well they're just probably not strong enough yet they're, they're young they haven't had enough so we can say the reason it's not at a high level execution yet is because they're not strong enough if somebody doesn't hit the biomechanical positions or postures well we could say it could be skill acquisition but it also could be strength right if i'm not strong enough sometimes i can't hit them the proper positions or postures just because i don't have the strength yet so when we look at that, that kind of helps us guide our decisions as to what the next strategy is to help uh, correct those patterns.
2: Yeah, and um, I love what you're saying about having almost three different, uh, I guess, lenses to view a certain, like a change of direction task. Um, and I love what you're talking about with the strength issue. Um, and I'm just wondering whether there's any, I guess, what your view is on your strength. Uh, I guess your markers of what you might look for in the weight room if you were going to assess that kind of thing what are your biggest rocks on that side of things
1: yeah so again I'm always going back to what what does the model look like how should they be moving so if if my athletes can hit the model if they move really well so if they sprint well good mechanics if they laterally shuffle really well they jump and land really well now I'm going to start to say okay well if you're a if you're a goalie in soccer, these are things you have to be able to do. So if they if they don't have a lot of power in their legs, but mechanically they're good, like they got great hands, they they anticipate well, but like if they get a chipped ball high, they just can't get up. So I know I'm gonna have to get them stronger. I'm gonna have to give, give them more power. So my strength training, and this is a philosophy I've changed over the years, my philosophy now is I want them to be able to perform really, really well on the pitch, on the track, you know, on the court, on the field, whatever. I want them to be able to perform their skills really, really well there first. Then I say, okay, How do I support that with strength training? When I was younger, I used to say, okay, we're gonna do this strength training and we're gonna build it about, you know, who's the best and who's got the highest numbers in the weight room and they still stunk out on the field or on the basketball. So I'm like, okay, this isn't, something's not adding up. So I I changed my philosophy. I'm like, it really comes down to how well they perform. Then I can go to the weight room and say, all right, maybe I need to get them at so many meters per second on on a hang pole or a hang clean or something like that, because that's going to show me that they can reach their, you know, maximal speeds or power output at a certain amount of, uh, you know, meters per second. And we've seen through research that that matters. Okay, so I can do that kind of stuff. Or I know when I work with volleyball players, especially in the females, the, uh, the, the standard is 10 feet. If they can get 10 feet, We know that's a good thing. So how can I use the weight room to help them get 10 feet? And so that's kind of how I base a lot of my strength training philosophies now.
2: Yeah, a bit more like what is the problem you're trying to solve with the strength training rather than saying we're doing strength training to go by this, you know, the system of we have to do this first, then we do that. It's almost what's your low hanging fruit? And yeah. for you, it sounds like the biggest rock is at least technically first on the court, because that will bring some level of uh, at least positional strength for what that's they're going right. to encounter. And then off the back of that, then when the issue is they're just not strong enough yet, that's when you can really challenge them in the weight room.
1: Exactly. Yep, exactly.
0: Would you say that's been one of your biggest, let's say, philosophy shifts over the last kind of, I don't know if that's been the five years, kind of 10 years, Lee? Is that kind of one of the biggest shifts that you've seen?
1: Yeah. And I would say it's been about 20 years or so, because I remember attending an internship um, out in San Diego a long time ago. We talked a lot about this. A lot of the other professionals were there. This was a big discussion we were having. And so before you had uh, gotten on the, the call, early, Ash and I were talking, when I grew up in the 80s and even the later 70s, bodybuilding dominated the fitness profession. That's what it was. I read all the magazines were all bodybuilders. It was Arnold Schwarzenegger and I was, that's what it was. So a lot of people that were in the strength field, that's, that was a lot of it. It was built around this hypertrophy, get bigger and s- certainly stronger. But, you know, adding muscle was important and not saying that it isn't. But what I started to figure out was like, because I was getting athletes strong, but they weren't performing better and so i i started to realize okay we we've, we've got to use strength that supports their movement quality and their skills so i started to look at this concept that you that you're seeing thrown around a lot more is how much strength is enough mm-hmm. and i'm all for being really strong i mean I, I don't ever think there's a negative to it it's just we've got to make sure we never lose summation of move, movement sequencing. You know, we want to be careful that not everything has a co-contraction because a co-contraction at maximal speeds isn't a great thing for a limb. A limb needs to be able to have, you know, some freedom to be able to move while the other side is contracting to force the movement and vice versa. So those are the things that I kind of look at a lot more now.
0: That's yeah, I think that's really interesting as well, and. I think one thing we've we've got to remember, actually, which is often overlooked, strength and conditioning as an industry is still in its infancy. Yeah, maybe, especially if we look at how old professional sport is, we're probably only around 20, 25 years old. Maybe here in the UK, I use quite often rugby as an example. I think rugby here in the UK turned professional in nineteen ninety-eight, so we it's it's very much in its infancy as a profession. If we look at the professional, we call them like accrediting institutions whatever you think of those as kind of irrelevant they haven't been around for that long if you compare that to something like teaching which has been around for a long time and how that profession is actually growing and developing and the teething problems that it had so i think there's obviously there's always going to be new things people are always going to be changing ideas and especially the younger coaches change kind of ideas as often as they change their socks so it really does just change all the time but so i want to Slightly different tactic going a little bit off script here, Lee, but I think this will be a really insightful question, hopefully. What important truth or fundamental kind of thought do you have that very few people you think will agree with you on? Just from your experience in the industry, I know that's potentially a very big question. Yeah. What do you I think you you've got a lot more experience, probably more experience than me and Ash put together, definitely. So, from I suppose younger coaches in the profession, I think that that'll be a really in, insightful uh, question to ask.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a really really good question, and I think um, the probably the one area that um, I catch more uh, conversation on, or not that people are always just hardcore in disagreement with me, but they don't understand it completely where I'm coming from is this concept of guided discovery and um, solution-oriented. Because this is one thing that I've found over the years is the greatest skill any athlete can learn is how to read their situation. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned it earlier. You meant when you were talking about, you know, advanced, you know, the Federers and those guys, like they read quicker than anyone what could potentially happen in a in a in a point. And that only comes from being in high amounts of exposure. And and I think what what the the biggest issue people have is the ugliness. I'm okay with ugliness in a practice. I'm okay with it looking a l- little bit disorganized or a little bit sloppy because I understand learning. The brain, if we could open up the brain and see what's happening during learning, we'd say, oh my gosh, that's a that looks like a mess in there. And it and it is, until the brain figures it out and, and finds a solution, it's all over the place. That's the that's the thing. That's what learning is. Because if you and I could go back to when we were just first learning how to walk. It was pretty ugly. I mean, that wasn't pretty at all, right? I mean, that was, we were all over the place, but but nobody told us what to do. You know, mom and dad didn't say, well, use your right foot. And when you use your right foot, make sure your left hand is forward because that's opposite, right? We just, our body knows what to do. It, it, it figures it out. So I've never really gotten too far away from that. And, and a lot of even interns that I had over the years when I had my uh, speed academies would say, well, shouldn't you like interject there? And I'm like, not yet, because they haven't had a chance to fail enough. If you don't fail enough, you don't earn that right to learn it. You've got to learn it. Now, I could step in and tell them exactly what to do. But they're only doing it because I said it. They still haven't become uh, um, proficient at it. It's just that I told them how to do it. So I think they have to go through that reading of the environment, the task, figuring out proprioceptively, kinesthetically, and, and then and then what happens is all of a sudden they they gain a flicker of success, and that flicker of success tells the brain, aha, uh-huh, that's it, that that I got to do that again. And then it does that again. And then next thing you know, it's two or three flickers. And and before you know it, now the flickers dominate the movement and that becomes the whole whole pattern as where before it was a mess. People have a hard time with that because it's ugly. And they don't like it being ugly. They don't want parents to see their kids looking messy and them not saying anything. ADs, athletic directors don't wanna see that.
0: They wanna see everything structured.
1: But unfortunately, that's not how learning occurs. So we have to know when to jump in and when to let it go.
0: No, I think that's a, that's a brilliant point. I think if there's something that I constantly have to tell myself, that if, if there's no failure, then there's, there's no learning. If there's no la- learning, there's no adaptation. And if there's no adaptation, then there's no point in us being there. Yeah. And I think that's that little cycle. And believe it or not, that was my woodwork teacher at school used to say a similar thing to me. <laughs> about him, when, when people were kind of messing around in the classroom and things, that's yeah. when he, he would bring his like spiel out, and that's kind of stuck stuck with me ever since. <laughs> but I think that's that's a really important thing because I think we're all guilty as coaches, of like we love to coach, we love to interject and show our knowledge and things like that. We want everything to be perfect, and we just want to jump in instead of just taking a step back, let almost the chaos unfold, and then after numerous repetitions. We can step back in and things like that. Does that mean something that you have learned over time or something that you've. Kind of just done naturally from the start, from your kind of teaching days.
1: You know, I was very fortunate to have a family of teachers and my, my dad and my two brothers were really good coaches as well. And they used to teach me that way back. And my father, um, who was in it for, you know, like. Forty-four years, he was around it forever. So I was fortunate to watch them and learn from them. And he, he always said, "He goes, you need more attempts. So let them go, let them do it. They'll they'll start to get." And he, he would always say. You'll know when to interject. You can tell when it's going bad really quick. Then you just got to get them back in order and let them go again. Mm -hmm. It's just like running next to your child when they're learning how to ride a bike. You kind of grab the handle to make sure they don't run into the parked car or the mailbox or something. You kind of help them, but then you let them go again and eventually you don't have to touch them. They'll figure it out. And I was, for some reason, it may have been my, my uh, parents and my brothers and sisters who were teachers, for some reason, I was always okay with the madness and the ugliness. I was okay with that. I, I learned early on that I could let that go. Now, I probably still overcoached when I was younger because I, you know, I got my degree in coaching, my master's degree, and I think, oh, I better use it. I got letters behind my name. Better, you know, I got to use it well then i started to realize the more i talked the more i confused them so when i shut up and just let them go they figured it out they they mm-hmm. they got it. and this is the other point and you guys will know this you ever go to the park and play any sport and there's always an athlete who was like really good and never played organized sports never was coached by anyone but they're just good they just like they're the best soccer player on the pitch. They're the best basketball player out there or one of the best. And you're like, well, where did you go? No, I just played on my own. I'm like, there you go. That's a, an example of someone just figured it out, you know, by doing it.
0: And do you have a idea of how many? I know this may be a silly question, but some people say there's no stupid questions. There you go. Is there an idea? Do you have an idea in your head of how many questions you want to kind of let them go on? If, even if it is if you see them, maybe there's no progressions or slight improvements after five, six, seven, eight reps, do you, is it then when you would jump in or you think, okay, maybe we just change the drill slightly and see what happens?
1: Yeah. So the two things that I always, and, and this is the thing I, I try to tell coaches, it's an organized system of chaos. Mm-hmm. That's the way I should, because let's say I'm teaching you and I'm going to demonstrate and I'm going to say, okay, all right, now, Uh, do you understand? So if you say to me, yeah, coach, I get it. I know what you're asking me to do. Good. Let's go. But if you kind of like weren't sure what I was telling you or the demonstration, then I'm like, okay, I can't let you go because you just, you, you're going to go way off the beaten path. So I want to make sure, first of all, I always check for understanding. So as the athlete starts going through the skill, if it's, looking like they're getting better like they're they're doing the right things it's just disorganized right now the synchronization's off but yeah they're moving in the right way I'll ask say so you're good you, you still understand yeah I got it coach I just I don't feel it yet I'm like good keep going but if they're like if they're really off and they're just not doing it well literally within like one to two reps I'm going to say hold on do you, are you sure you know what I'm talking about? You got to do this right. And if they say, "Yes, I get it," I'm like, "I don't think you get it. Like, I'm sure not even you're not even in the same ballpark you know, <laughs> as I am." Then I'll reintroduce it and go again. So that's kind of how I do it. I just kind of ask them and check for understanding. As long as they're understanding and they they get it, then you just got to let them go a little bit more.
0: Mm-hmm. No, I like that. Um, so just just moving on, I want to kind of change directions just a little bit here. Yeah. Uh, and I want to talk more about the the business of coaching, if you like. And I know you've been on quite a few podcasts where you've talked about various camps, clinics, the model that you've got. And I believe that you run a mentorship program around that now. I could be wrong. Yes. Is that right?
1: Yes, we have. We've done a yep, we've done a mentorship, a couple of them for um, coaches, yeah.
0: Yeah, so I'd just like to get into like if if for coaches out there that may be more interested in making a little bit on the side, because I know COVID's probably hit them pretty hard, we've got to make some yeah. revenue. How, what's the best way from your experiences to uh, to go about setting up clinics, camps? Like, wh- how, how do we go about it? If, if young coaches maybe want to try and get into that realm a little bit now, or even older coaches who are thinking, okay, well, I don't want to work as often. but yeah. when So when I do work, I need to get more bang for my buck.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And it's an important model that i don't think a lot of a lot of us in the industry probably just didn't pay attention to fortunately for me i've done probably 350 or more camps and clinics over my career i really that was how i built my my even my academies when i had my brick and mortar businesses i drove athletes in there because i ran my my marketing clinics or my jumpstart clinics, or my pro-style combine clinics. So I have a whole model of different clinics that I use, and I try to help coaches understand. I'm like, you could go and, you know, make a phone call to this people who express interest, or you could send an email to this, and those are all important. Or you could reach out to maybe a soccer club, or a volleyball club, or a basketball club, or a rugby club, and say, hey, coach, I'd love to come by. I have this clinic that I do and, you know, it's charged whatever you want to charge, you know, maybe it's a, a low amount of money because you're just trying to get exposure, but maybe if you charge like American dollars, say you charge $50 and you went into two hour clinic, but you had 50 kids. Okay. That's a pretty good chunk of money. You're going for two hours, do that. You know, that, that's, you know, $2,500 you're making for two hours on uh, going and teaching what we do anyway, teach how to how to you know run properly how to change direction if you want to make it sport specific you if i want to go in and do a lacrosse or a rugby or a tennis clinic you go in and you do that so you what you're doing is you're exposing your skill set as a coach and there's going to be a certain population of those athletes that you work with that say hey i want more that was fun. That was good. I learned, I want to do more. Now you can draw them to your brick and mortar business or in a time like when COVID where we're kind of locked down, you can actually, and I've, I've actually helped a couple of coaches make, you know, like five grand very quickly doing camps and clinics online. Believe it or not, you can do these online. And the way that you do them is you, the same that you would do it in person, you demonstrate and and do the skills you have it so that they can log in and they watch the videos they see the written document which has all the programs how many sets reps rest periods and they just follow it and then you meet with them weekly to discuss it and you could have 30 athletes on with you and you're, you're on a Zoom call or a call like this and you answer any of their questions, you talk about the last week, you talk about the upcoming week. This has been a very, I'm actually doing one right now. I have athletes from different, actually one in Canada, different parts of the uh, the states and it goes really, really well. And so camps and clinics is a great way to make more money to give you more exposure for your brick and mortar performance facility. And it's an outstanding way to make you an authority in the eyes of camp directors, uh, uh, excuse me, club directors, uh, school uh, coaches, uh, people that you want to impress. They're fantastic for that. And it just, you choose the model that you want that's gonna fit your situation best.
0: Mm And then with that, then are you, the sessions themselves. Are you taking a more structured view to the development? Let's just say it's a general speed camp. Are you saying, okay, well, I'm gonna, I've got two hours. I'm gonna smash through all of my seven fundamental movement patterns, or am I maybe picking a few of those and just going into the nitty gritty? Or the flip side, and I'm guessing this is more dependent on the audience and the age group you're working with just keeping it really fun, lots of chase games, things like that. How, how kind of into the nitty gritty are you planning on getting in those sessions so you give the most value for money you can?
1: Exactly. So if I do, if I'm doing a like there's many schools that will that will bring me in to work with their programs and we do what's called a jumpstart speed clinic. It's two hours I show them the seven patterns. And because I have two hours, I can put a decent amount of time on each one of those. And we talk about how to move most efficiently, the positions, and then I give multiple correctives. And I'll even ask the coaches or parents to come. They can watch, they can take pictures and video and watch and see what I'm doing so that they can take it and do it at home. So we'll expose them like that. But now the best format is to do a clinic series. So I might say, hey, over the next five weeks, I'm gonna do a series of clinics. Now, when I do that, each day usually represents a movement pattern, maybe two. So my very first one might be linear acceleration. So I take linear acceleration, we break down the mechanics, but then we give variety. So we'll give, um, you know, maybe starting laterally, maybe starting half kneeling, maybe doing a hip turn into acceleration. And then we'll do my tier system where they react to each other, things of that nature. And we'll go about an hour. And then next week we'll attack maybe lateral acceleration. Those are better learning situations to create a result at the end. As with that two-hour jump start, it's almost like my active business card. It's my way of showing them what they could get if they trained with me more often, because I, if I especially if they only say, "Hey, we just want to do one clinic, I'll show them all the stuff so they can use that or train with me. But if they say, hey, we really want to get better at this. I'll say, well, let's do a series of these over the next four or five, six weeks. And then I can really dive in on each one of these. So that just depends on what you want. And then the games are always a part of it. Always, even my other ones, we always finished with fun games. Cause I always said, if you want people to come back, Leave them laughing. You got
0: to have fun at the end. I, I couldn't agree more with that that last statement. It's I've been writing out a curriculum of what our, our new athletic development curriculum, and my main KPI is enjoyment.
2: Yeah,
0: and I, I think that's just got to be it. Like it doesn't matter the level of athlete you're working with. Can be a ten year old. It can be a twenty two year old collegiate or even pro athlete. If they're not enjoying it, they don't care.
1: That's right. It's simple
0: as that. Yeah. Um, I just want to follow up quickly, Lee, just on, on that, uh, on talking about price points and things like that, because people I know get really sticky on prices and things, not sure whether to go like high ball it, low ball it. Right. Now, I'm not expecting you to reveal your pricing structure, yeah, things, no, but that's fine. what would be kind of, what would be your advice to maybe like younger coaches, older coaches, like where, where to pitch?
1: Yes. Yes. Great question. So first of all, the most important thing is to build momentum. So, you come in at a lower price initially because you need to be able to show the results you can get. So, for example, if I'm going to do like a just a quick one, two hour clinic, but I can get maybe 30 athletes, I'm okay charging, you know, $20 or maybe $30 or something like that. Um, If I have 30, athletes, I still made $900 for an hour. That's pretty good. I mean, if I can make $900 an hour and work, you know, three, four hours a day, I'm going to be pretty happy with that. So, but here's the cool thing. Once you establish these clinics and you get better at it and you're, you're noticing Nobody's balking at all at the price. Nobody seems to care. Well, now you might be able to go to 35 or $40. You can raise your rates as the demand raises. Mm-hmm. So start low and then you add price as you go through it. And here's the other point. The more specialized you are, the higher you can you can uh, price it. So for example, you gave an example earlier, you said, Okay, let's say I'm going to do a general speed camp. Okay, general speed camp. There's a price point that I can probably get away with, depending on where I live, right? So we'll say, let's say it was fifty dollars for a two-hour camp. Okay, per athlete, something like that. But if I said to you, um, okay, I'm going to run a, um, I'm going to run a, a, let's say a soccer specific camp geared towards athletes who want to get a scholarship to play at university. Okay, now I can I can probably charge a $100 because if I'm a high school athlete, wants to get a scholarship, number one, I've, I've described a particular niche. And when you go after a particular niche, everybody in that niche raises their hand. They're like, hey, Lee's talking to me. He's talking about... high school athletes that want to get a scholarship in soccer. So if I use those words, so that person, but if they saw the guy next to me said, hey, I'm doing a general speed camp, come join me. Well, which one do you think they're going to choose? And they're going to be willing to pay more because I'm giving them what they need to get the outcome they want. And that's the last point I want to make. If I can tell you hey, I'm going to increase your scoring opportunities or I'm going to make you a defender that reduces your opponent's scoring opportunities, I'm giving you an outcome that maybe gets you off the bench and on the, mm-hmm. in on the starting lineup, people will pay for that. So you've got to be really strategic on the words you use and the type of camping clinic and the outcomes you're going to give them because people will look past the price if you can give them an outcome.
0: Uh huh. And did you do you offer or would you think about as well kind of like family discounts i know we may be getting into specifics here but if you've got a son and a daughter in that camp is it kind of they both come for the same price like you buy one get one free
1: i always give discount yep i always help families um i just think it's number one it's the right thing to do um and it's hard to get athletes to come so if you can get two or three from one family hey you know get them in just get them in get them involved in that. So I always give, whether like you said, you can give them half off or whatever you feel is good. But I don't think I've ever turned away a family member that wanted to do it. Even if they said, we just, we can have one do it. I'm like, look, don't worry about it. Just maybe help me tell somebody about it. And they'll, they'll be more than glad. But I never turn away family members. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I absolutely love that perspective as well about, helping people and getting as many people as you can in um, and you've almost talked about how you would go about it um, and maybe why you go about it as well I was just wondering maybe if you had an advice for those young coaches who want to start setting this up but aren't necessarily sure um, they're at the right stage to set those kind of things up I was going to ask would you have any advice for those guys about when the right time is to start to set up these clinics and maybe is there anything you kind of need on the back end um, maybe systems or ideas that you believe in, in terms of you know speed or whatever the clinic is that you want to deliver.
1: Absolutely. So here's the thing: everybody's ready. Everybody's ready to do this. You just have to put your system together. So um, just like any other business model, you you uh, you create your model of camps and clinics. I truly believe it's easier if you pick a niche. So if I say, hey, I'm a rugby speed coach or I do basketball, you know, speed and quickness or maybe basketball skill, whatever, because it makes your marketing easier. I can now talk to that that population. I can talk to my rugby athletes or my tennis or my whomever it is. When you don't talk to people, they don't listen if you go general because people are used to general things now so they just kind of goes in one and not the other but if i say hey i'm this this volleyball clinic is for all eighth grade volleyball girls who want to play on the highest level team next year well every eighth grade volleyball girl is going to say that's me i want to do this." so i can pretty much guarantee myself i'm going to have a pretty active Group of people because I called their number. I called them out. I said who they are. That's who I train. That's important. So anybody can start that now. Now what you do from that point is you create your clinic. So what is your warm up going to look like? What is are you going to do? Maybe some CNS activation. You know some quick foot drills, ladder drills, whatever you want to do. What type of speed? and jumping and power. What type of stuff are you gonna do? Are you gonna include strength training? Maybe you're doing it somewhere where they can do that. Um, if not, build it out how you want it. And then the key to it is when you finish it. So if you're gonna go and do one clinic, just a one-off clinic, you need to have something at the end to say, hey guys, this was amazing. You know, Make sure you thank your parents. Make sure, you, but, hey, listen, don't forget This coming weekend, I'm actually offering a program at my facility, and you guys are invited as my guest. Now you get them in your facility. Now you can sell them on your programs. And that's how I actually grew my Speed Academy. I would do these clinics, and then at the end, I would actually have, like, a piece of paper about this big. And I would give it to them, and it would say, I'm a guest of Lee Taft for this weekend's clinic at his facility, they loved it. I would get multiple kids and then a lot of them would sign up. Next thing you know, I just signed up a bunch of kids off doing one little clinic at their school or at their club. So you've gotta be prepared for that. And that's business, right? That's being prepared and not walking away without giving them something to get more of you because it's not like you're trying to twist their arm. If they liked it, they're going to want more of it. So it's selfish of me not to offer them to be able to do more with me, especially if I can help them. So you offer, if they don't want it, that's fine. But if they want to get better, they know I'm an option for them.
2: Yeah, it's absolutely brilliant. And even, um, I I wouldn't necessarily say it's upselling, but it's given them an opportunity to see what else they want to go into. Um, Which, you know, it kind of makes you think that, you know, what we do as coaches is we, you know, we, we do coach through at least some kind of system um, every time we see a person because we've got things that we believe in and we have progression. So it's just can we deliver a, a little piece of that that almost covers all of what we how we think and at least our current thought processes doesn't have to be, you know, the perfect way to coach speed. It might just be what we've got at the minute. But, you know, if you approach that to the right niche, it sounds like, you know, if, if it's their first time having that kind of thing, maybe it's their first speed development workshop. You know, you're hitting that niche and that's how you're going to get those people in so maybe it's not exactly you know you have to have a system that you think is the perfect system that's when you're ready to deliver it. actually you can yep. deliver when you feel like you've got some value which is you know it's while we're employed so almost exactly. whenever you want and
1: when i was a teacher i used to do the same thing i would finish a class like a phys ed class and i'd say uh, hey, great job today. Really good. And we'd go through some stuff. And I say, you wait till tomorrow. Wait till you see what I have tomorrow. Now they're all like, okay, what are we doing? Uh, nope, you got to wait, wait till tomorrow. We're gonna... And they were all excited. They couldn't wait to come in for the next class because I gave them something to be excited about. It's the same thing in business. That's what we try to do. So I always left them wanting more at the end of a class. And, and that had nothing to do with selling them, trying to buy because they were my students. But I got them so excited to come back the next day and I'd say, like, you know, you wait till till you see what we're going to do tomorrow. They're like, what are we doing? I'm like, sorry, you're going to wait till tomorrow. Then they couldn't wait to come in.
2: Yeah. And even uh, I think the biggest key there was almost letting them see or giving them an image of what they're going to do in the future. So nothing's like an isolated, you know, it's not one session on its own. Um, Like One of the the biggest bits of success I've had uh, in the last like two or three months is, telling to the kids, saying, look, I don't really care how you how you're going to how strong you're going to be or whatever. By the end of this year, what I really care about is I can't wait to see what you're going to be like in three, four years when you leave the school. I can't wait to see that. And you see the little light in their eyes. They kind of just they really buy into that when you start to sell them that image or show them that image. So I guess, you know, leading over to business, it's that same kind of thing where just show them the image of what they're going to do. And then they can at least be more ready to be Mm -hmm. up for it.
1: Exactly. That's a great point. Very well said. And I want to make one other point about when you get young coaches who don't feel ready to do camps and clinics, but they train athletes, like even in your case, where you have a captive audience because you teach them in school. I used to run camps and clinics with my athletes. I currently trained in my facility, and I would tell them and say, hey, guys, next week, I'm going to run a 90 minute clinic with you and you guys are gonna be I'm gonna take video of you you guys are gonna be the first ones to ever experience and the reason I did it it was a test run it allowed me to see what and I but what I did is I got video so I got marketing I could get some clips of it so I could use that but it allowed me to say oh okay I think I better do this or maybe I shouldn't do that one because that didn't go very well so younger coaches right now if they if they're coaching a team just go ahead and run a practice clinic. And that's a great way to get confident. And then those kids, I guarantee you, are going to love it. And then they start talking. Next thing you know, you start running more and more clinics.
0: Perfect. I think that's a, a great point to kind of start wrapping it up on, Lee. I know we've uh, we've kept you potentially a little bit longer than uh, than we promised you would. So apologies for that. But I think there's some great nuggets of, of information in there. Just Just to start kind of wrapping things up, is there any but I know you've got a few kind of resources and and products and things out there. So where can people kind of find out about those? Um, What would you you recommend? I know you've got a very active social media, so do you mind just kind of pointing people to those various products and socials and things like that?
1: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate you guys allowing me to share that. Yeah, so if they go to anything at Lee Taft, they can pretty much find me on social media. I try to be active on there and answer questions and share thoughts. if they're interested in the, you know, kind of the tennis population, we have a um, course. It's called the Certified Tennis Speed Specialist, and that would be ctss.co, C-O, um, and that's a, Even if they don't coach tennis, there's a lot of good information in that that they could benefit from, but also if they go to anything at uh, leetaft.com, they can find other courses that we have and, and blogs and things that we're sharing that they can get. And I'm always on. I always try to share stuff on social media, so uh, just to keep people educated and to share and to get thoughts. I like communities. I like people sharing ideas and uh, just helping. So, but thank you. I appreciate that.
0: And uh, yeah, I would actually say to all the listeners, um, I've kind of been through that uh, tennis course, tennis speed course that you talked about early. I think there is, even if you don't work in tennis, obviously it is slightly uh, what well, it is directed towards tennis coaches in particular but I think there's so much you can apply to various court sport or even field sport athletes in there as well. Lots of nuggets you can take away and, and apply with, um, with your athletes on the day. So I think that's a, it's a go-to and a, a very good price point as well, if I do say so. So thank you for putting that out for everyone. Thank you. No, I appreciate you saying that, Chris. Thank you. No problem. So uh, yeah, thank you very much, guys. I hope uh, hope everyone listening has enjoyed that episode. I've got pages upon pages and notes. So thank you very much for coming on and being our first uh, two-time, two-time guest, Lee. So <laughs> thank you very much. Hopefully we can get you on for a part three at some point in the future.
1: I'd love it. I'm honored, guys. Thank you and be safe.